0: It's a delight to be able to welcome all of you into the house here at Nine Mile. Those of you that are over at Spanish Trail, welcome. Those of you that are uh, out uh, in cyberspace uh, looking at us and viewing us and worshiping with us, either in your home or wherever you may be, we welcome you here this morning as well. And uh, we finished today the sixth message in the magisterial first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians as we continue to dig deep in this very instrumental and important lesson from Paul, this wonderful book of the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit. Today I want to look with you for a few minutes at the subject, the supreme ministry of the gospel. This past summer, near the end of August, on a beautiful Summer afternoon, my son Seth and I were in the Czech Republic in Prague in one of the most beautiful cities of old Central Europe, and we were up on the west side of the Charles River up on the Castle Hill, and we had had a wonderful day and uh, concluding a wonderful week, and we were kind of walking around up there eating an ice cream cone, waiting for the sun to set, and passed a couple of embassies as we walked along. And I looked at Seth and I said, you know, when I get back to the room, I need to look up the location of the American embassy because I sure would love to see it. And as we literally took about 10 more steps and turned right, rounding a corner, my son whipped, who was in front of me, whipped on his heels back toward me and pointed to me and said, Dad, ask and ye shall receive. And literally, not having gotten that out of my mouth, but a few few seconds before, we turned the corner and ran right into it where we saw old glory flapping in the, I get cold chills about it right now, and I sure had them as we were there. The sign on the side of the building in red there said, uh, no photographs, please. And of course, (laughs) I didn't know that, and I was making pictures of both of us standing there. You know what an embassy is? I'm just thankful I didn't get arrested. Amen. An embassy is a a foreign outpost. It's, of course, an outpost of one sovereign nation located within another sovereign nation, and they're staffed, of course, by ambassadors. Ambassadors don't have any direct authority in and of themselves, but they are there to represent and speak for and further the interests of someone more important than them, And that's exactly how the Bible describes you and me in terms of our role and our function and our responsibility for our sovereign, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul will tell us, as he did the Corinthians, that we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. And it's that very concept that Paul now turns in Colossians chapter 1, he turns to this important idea of how we function as believers in terms of our relationship to the gospel ministry. Paul has spent a great deal of time painting this beautiful picture of what I call the cosmic Christ, this massively big Christ in every dimension. He's given us a positive ID of Jesus, and having done that, He then turns to the sacrificial ministry of Jesus Christ, the supreme ministry of this very big cosmic Christ, which as we've learned was reconciliation. And now Paul turns inward. Having established the person of Christ and the work of Christ, Paul now turns to himself and really to all of us who follow after Jesus as Savior and Lord, and he enters into a discussion of the gospel ministry that Jesus has entrusted, not only to Him, but to every single one of us. Let's take a look at it this morning, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. Paul says, Now, having established all of that about the person of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross to perform the ministry of reconciliation to get us back to God, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints." To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Boy, that's rich, rich, rich. That's a four-part sermon series right there in another paragraph. But we're going to try to swallow it whole uh, this morning because what this is really serves kind of as a mission statement for the Apostle Paul. It's why he's here. It's why God saved him and left him on earth. And because it's a mission statement for him, And because we follow the same Christ in the same way Paul did, albeit with maybe a little bit different calling specifically, we're all still followers of Christ. This becomes a mission statement for every single one of us. Because we're all called, are we not, to a life of sacrificial service to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Make no mistake, you and I, we're all ambassadors for Jesus Christ Let me point out this morning as we look at the sacrificial ministry of the gospel, four very important things that Paul reveals that apply to every single one of us. I'm going to call it our gospel ministry because that's what it is. First of all, we notice that our gospel ministry is a God-given stewardship. In other words, it's a ministry that is given to us by God. It comes to us as a trust from God. Paul says in verse 25, I became a minister according to the what? According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What is a steward? Well, a steward, of course, is a manager. A steward is a caretaker. A steward is a custodian. He manages, he cares for, he guards that which is entrusted to him or her. He doesn't own the it fact the steward generally didn't own anything back in biblical times they were caretakers of what belonged to someone else and you know as well as I do though most of us tend to understand stewardship in monetary terms but it's far bigger and broader than that every one of us is a steward when it comes to the treasure of the gospel that God has entrusted to us as his servants Paul will write the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 notice it this is how we should regard Uh, uh, one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful, trustworthy. And that's the thing about owning the gospel or possessing the gospel. We possess it not as something to hoard, but as something that we're to release, something that we're to give away. The gospel is a sacred trust that comes from God, and we're all accountable for how we manage the gospel. Stewards are always accountable to the master. Well, how are we accountable and to whom? Well, we're accountable, of course, to God because that's where we receive, that's from whom we receive the gospel. He gives it to us, the Bible says, with a very clear purpose that Paul defines in verse 25 And what is the purpose of our custodianship of the gospel? It is simply this, to make the Word of God fully known. And that's true whether it's in my role, preaching the gospel to a crowd like this, or it's true for you, to make God's Word fully known, whether it's talking to a co-worker or witnessing, uh, sharing your faith with a neighbor or with a friend that someone has uh, informed you about that you may know that needs the Lord. Whatever the case may be, we're all called to make God's Word known to other people. And listen, that's something that most of us know. The question this morning is not do you know it, because most Christians know it. The question is, are you eager to do it? See, it's one thing to know that you're a custodian, a steward of the Word of God. It's another thing to be excited about that. And to take the role very seriously. I love the way Paul opens his letter to the Romans because he'll make an, he makes several important statements in that introductory chapter of Romans. But there's one that I think is especially important for us concerning this subject today where in verse 14 Paul says, I am under obligation. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am what? Eager to preach the gospel. And the question this morning is, do we have that kind of enthusiasm when it comes to our stewardship of the gospel treasure? Are we eager to share the gospel? Not to add to the gospel, not to share our gospel, but to share the unending, never changing, valuable, priceless commodity that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you to name the most popular and priceless painting in the world, you probably would guess that it was the Mona Lisa. Some of you all in here may have been to Paris to see the Mona Lisa, and you just about have to go to Paris. It's in the Louvre. Over 10 million people witnessed the Mona Lisa last year in terms of tourism, and she's the most popular painting in the known world. The Mona Lisa's only left the lube twice in the last hundred years. Once in 1963, the year I was born, to go to Washington, D.C. at the urging of Jacqueline Kennedy. So it went to Washington where the crowds were so thick to get in to see the Mona Lisa that the average person who saw the painting only got to glimpse it for an average of four seconds. And then in 1974, it was taken from Paris to Tokyo, and then later to Moscow on that same trip. And what was interesting is that both of those times that the painting left its regular home there in Paris, there were tremendous precautions that were taken to ensure that the painting didn't get disturbed, that the painting didn't get smudged, that the paintings had no smears, that it was able to be witnessed in all of its glory, no nicks, no nicks. No cuts, no changes. The bottom line is when it comes to Mona, you don't mess with Mona. Amen. You present Mona exactly as Leonardo intended her to be presented. You present her exactly as is. And that's what stewards are to do with the gospel. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. You stay true to it. As Paul will tell Timothy, preach the word and deliver the gospel just as you received it. Our ministry is a God-given stewardship. But then notice, secondly, that our ministry involves personal cost. Serving Christ didn't like serving Uncle Sam. You can serve Uncle Sam if you want to, because we have an all-volunteer force. Isn't that right? But serving Christ is different. Paul was not a volunteer to the gospel ministry, and neither are you if you know Jesus. How many of you know Jesus? Say amen. amen. You're not a volunteer. Now, there are some things you should volunteer for, but being a part of the gospel ministry in one of them, Christ conscripts you into the gospel ministry, and yet so many of God's family are a wall when it comes to ministry. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because it's costly to make the Word of God fully known. That's our stewardship, to make the Word of God fully known. But if you do that, have you noticed, you might get smacked around a little bit, might have some sharp invective directed towards you. I mean, you're going to probably pay a cost if you're serious about doing what Paul did. Costs aren't the same for everybody, but it will cost everybody something to faithfully minister the gospel. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, the first part of that statement is pretty straightforward because Paul makes clear, I am suffering for you. And that's interesting because, again, these were people that he did not know and people that he had not met. And yet, not only is he suffering for those people, but he's rejoicing that he's suffering. Oh, my He's rejoicing that he's suffering for these people that he did not know. Man, it's one thing to suffer for a friend. Paul will say that to the Romans. Man, it's one thing to die for somebody you love and somebody you know, but Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul is suffering for people that he didn't even know, but that he loved by extension very, very much. Now, we're not sure exactly what all he's talking about. We do know he's in jail, which according to the Jim Locke definition would be suffering if you're, in a, if, if you're under house arrest in a dark, dusty, dank, mold-infested, mildew-ridden cell of some kind, then you're suffering for the gospel. We journeyed our way through Paul's missionary journeys, and everybody that made that journey with us here at Hillcrest should know that Paul suffered all kinds of abuse and indignation. Stone, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, left for dead, all kinds of abuse. Ran out of town on a rail more than once as he planted churches and preached the gospel in Asia and throughout Europe. I mean, he was suffering, in a sense, an extension of the sufferings of Christ. And the reason that was true is because the affliction that he was bearing, listen, he wasn't suffering because his name was Paul from Tarsus. He was suffering because of what he was preaching about Jesus, which meant that the suffering ultimately was probably even more directed toward his message than it was him. He wouldn't have suffered if he just kept his mouth shut about Jesus, but it was because he was talking about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. He was suffering because of Christ, and that's what Paul means, I think, when he uses this kind of this mysterious statement where he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. If you read that like I do, you think, well, how could anything be lacking in the suffering of Christ? That's one of the mysterious statements of Paul, but I don't think it's all that hard to understand it because there was nothing lacking in the redemptive suffering of Christ on the cross if that were true then the gospel would need to be Christ plus because Christ's death wouldn't be sufficient now his sufferings on the cross for sin were absolutely sufficient but that's not what Paul is talking about Jesus paid it all he paid our sin debt in full But the fact of the matter is, Christ, in a spiritual sense, continues to bear abuse and affliction today. He's just not here physically to receive it. Everybody tracking with me? So Christ receives affliction. Christ receives abuse today. He's not here physically to receive it. But who receives it instead? We do. Whenever we faithfully preach and testify to the Word. Remember what Jesus asked Paul when he saved him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Well, I thought Paul was persecuting the church. You know what that means? Paul was persecuting the church, but by persecuting the church, he was persecuting the risen Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here. I'm suffering because of Christ. I'm bearing in my body the afflictions that are directed toward Jesus. And it's still true today. Did Jesus not say, in this world you will have trouble? Many in this world, Jesus said, will hate you because of me. That's the thing about the gospel. The gospel is an invitation to resistance. And sometimes it's an invitation to outright hostility because the gospel cuts at the core of people's pride, people's self-sufficiency, people's own sense of independence and liberation as they define independence and liberation. And because that's true, there's always a cost. Whenever you tell somebody with a Bible in your hand or from the Bible from your heart, whenever you tell somebody your very best isn't good enough, your life is lacking, you're living a life without purpose and meaning, let me tell you, if somebody's obstinate enough, they're going to they're resist that. That's why there's a price to pay. And it won't be the same for everybody. You might get reprimanded at work. You might lose your job. You might lose a friend. I mean, you might, you might go to prison like Paul did in certain parts of the world. In certain parts of the world, you might lose your life if you're really serious about staying true to the gospel. Yet the truth of the matter is, all over the New Testament, the Bible trumpets from those who are suffering in extreme ways for Christ, to those, from those who laid down their life for the cause of Christ, that the cost is worth it. And the reason it's worth it is because while many will resist the message, some will receive the message and be saved. The darkness will be pushed back. Some will respond and some will hear and Christian growth will happen, and the darkness will be overshadowed by the light, and the kingdom of God will grow. And knowing that always brings joy in the midst of suffering when you suffer for the gospel. There's a third thing that Paul mentions about the sacrificial ministry of the gospel, and that is it's focused on Christ. Our gospel is a ministry that's focused on Christ. To preach the gospel is to preach Jesus. To make the Word of God fully known, which Paul said was his reason for being, to make the Word of God fully known is, by definition, to make much of Jesus. And that's because Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the center of the gospel. You open the Bible from start to finish, And Jesus is there. You see Jesus in the book of Genesis. You see Jesus in the book of Exodus. You find Jesus in the worship passages of the Psalms and in the wisdom of the Proverbs and in the foretelling of the prophets. I'm just here to say this morning, if you look like you're supposed to be looking and reading the Bible like you're supposed to be reading, you can find Jesus in Leviticus for crying out loud. He's the hero of the whole Bible, and that's why Paul says here in verse 28, Him we proclaim. He's the center of our testifying. He's the center of our gospel preaching. And this is why you've got to be very careful when you're giving your testimony and when you're sharing with others what the Lord has done for you. Have you ever heard a testimony that made more of the testifier than it did of Jesus? Where you kind of become the center of the story it's at that point we kind of need to rework our story a little bit because if we're talking more about us than we're talking about Jesus, we're putting the cart before the horse. that makes sense? Everybody with me? So every one of us are called to make much of Jesus. Spurgeon once said, you don't really preach the gospel if you leave Christ out of it. If Christ be omitted, it is not the gospel. The gospel without Christ, like a loaf of bread without flour, a brook without water, a cloud without rain, the gospel without Christ is like night without a star. We are here to make much of Jesus. In these last days, the tragic thing is, is that there are many people who make more of politics than they make of Jesus. I would to God as a pastor that Christians would at least give equal time to Jesus on social media as they do their favorite political party and their favorite political candidate. I'm not saying don't be political, but I'm saying put the horse first and let's ride Jesus in our culture and make Him known. Him we proclaim. That's the purpose. Verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Two things there. One, God's people serve a prophetic function, a warning function. We're here to warn people. That's the confrontation part of it with people that are lost and that are controlled by sin and living more for the devil We warn people of the dangers of sin and the eternal consequences of sin. We confront the error that's so inherent in churches and in the world about false teaching, all the false notions about who Jesus is and who He's not and what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. There's a prophetic function in our witness to the gospel. But then there's also an instructive role that we play. We're prophetic. We warn people. But then we're instructive. We teach people with wisdom, the Bible says. And that's the twin pillars of evangelism and discipleship in terms of the ministry of the church. We're to reach out and at the same time to reach in. We're to warn others of the consequences of sin while instructing others toward maturity in Jesus Christ, which is really the ultimate goal of the gospel, maturity. Paul says, I want to be able at the end of time. He's actually looking ahead at the coming of Christ. I want to be able when it's all done, when it's all over, when everything's been said and done, I want to be able to present as many people as possible, everyone within the scope of my ministry. I want to be able to present them to the King of kings and Lord of lords as fully mature, complete, whole in every respect before Jesus when he comes on that last day. And that ought to be... Precisely our goal as a church. And it is. That's why we exist. Hillcrest exists to help people in becoming like Christ. That's maturity. Because to be a genuine Christian culture of disciples making disciples, we have to teach people toward maturity in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't happen quickly, that's a lifetime. It takes a long time to develop mature disciples, which is why we have to carry on in this gospel ministry with the long view in mind and not lose heart and not give up hope. And as we do that, what is the essence of leading people toward maturity? What's the heart of our Christian teaching? Paul calls it here a mystery, and he reveals what that mystery is in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, is now revealed to his saints, and then he defines what that mystery is. Here it is. Are you all ready? Say amen, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, you ought to either take a pen or a highlighter and circle that in your notes, mark it in your Bible, underline it in red, highlight it in yellow, that little phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory, because that's the essence of the gospel. That's not only the essence of the gospel, it's the foundation for all of eternity. The sum truth of everything that Paul wrote Reduced down to a single phrase, the entire gospel, if you want to take all 13 letters of the Apostle Paul and summarize them in a phrase, it's that one right there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that important. Some have described that as the greatest contribution of the Apostle Paul of all. That one simple phrase, because that's the gospel. Somehow, we all are familiar with the language of being in Christ. We in Christ. And that kind of describes our union with Christ, this supernatural oneness that happens when we're saved. We become one with Christ. But now, Paul kind of turns it the other way around and emphasizes that Christ is also in us. Now, remember the Christ that he's given us the positive ID on, God the Son Lord of creation, center of the universe, head of the church. That Christ in me, that's right. That's what makes it a mystery, doesn't it? The Old Testament saints, that was a mystery to them. They knew that God was up to something. They knew that someone special was coming that they called the Messiah, but they didn't really understand the specifics about it. So to them, that was a great mystery. Now the mystery is fully revealed, and that mystery serves at the heart of the gospel preaching of the early church. That's what they were revealing. That Messiah that the Jews had been looking for, that Savior, the Deliverer of the world, that's Jesus. That's the carpenter's son. That's Joseph and Mary's boy. He's God the Son, and He's the very center of the whole universe. And in order to know God, you have to come into an abiding right relationship with Him. And the beautiful thing is you can. It's a free gift just for the asking. And it will change your life, and it's the only thing that will give you hope for glory. In other words, eternal life. Hope beyond the grave. That's a reference to the eternal kingdom of heaven. And so because Christ is in us, man, that's just the most critical part of the gospel. It's critical in terms of how we live and function today. It's why Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. And it's critical for where we will spend eternity tomorrow. That's the heart of the gospel message. Everybody that trusts in Jesus, doesn't have to do anything, just trust in this very big Christ and have a personal relationship with Him, and you can not only know God, you can know your eternal future, but know Christ you must. Because our only security today and our only hope for eternity is Christ in you. That makes sense? Now, let me give you a final thing because we've got to close. And that is, with that in mind, when it comes to being an effective ambassador for Christ, His presence is critical because our gospel ministry forth is fueled by God's power. Fueled by God's power. I love how Paul, one of the key words of Colossians, you ought to write somewhere in your notes, just write the word fullness down. Fullness. It's all over Colossians chapter 1. Paul is constantly talking about some kind of spiritual fullness. He says that Christ is the what? Fullness of God, right? And he's just said that the church, and each individual who composes the church, has the fullness of of Christ in us. So Christ is the fullness of God. And if you know Jesus, you have the fullness of Christ who is the fullness of God dwelling on the inside of you. And then he says that we're to preach the fullness of God's Word. Everybody tracking with me? So Christ is the fullness of God and the church has the fullness of Christ and is given the responsibility for preaching the fullness of of the gospel, the Word of God, and toward this goal of preaching Christ completely and fully, and toward this goal of presenting everybody as mature in Christ, Paul now speaks of the fullness of God's power to help us accomplish this important mission. Verse 29, for this, presenting everybody full in Christ, preaching that man's only hope is Christ in you, He and he alone is the hope of glory. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. Gospel ministry doesn't just happen. It requires work. It requires intentionality. You have to say, yes, I will obey. I will do it. Gospel ministry is hard, intentional, diligent work. Paul describes it here as toil, or a word that means labor. We often call it the work of ministry, and boy, it surely is that. But Paul refers to it not only as work, but in the very next phrase, he uses the word struggling. For this I work, for this I toil, for this I labor, comma, struggling. That's an athletic term. That's a wrestler's term, or as we say in the South, wrestler. That's a wrestler's term. Struggle. It's a transliteration of the word agony. He literally says, For this I work agonizing. There's a concept of straining, of grunting, of even fighting in the good sense of the word. Life is a struggle, and ministry is a struggle. And so Paul says, toward this end of presenting everyone mature in Christ, I work. And as I work, I don't just work. Because some work is like desk work, and it doesn't require a whole lot of effort. But then there's other work, you've got you to put the back to it. And he said, toward this labor, I agonize. I strive, I contend. Paul's like Jacob who wrestled with the Lord on the banks of the Jabbok River near the end of the book of Genesis. And he wouldn't let go of the Lord. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what Paul's talking about here. I will not give up. I will not rest. I will not quit until the final horn sounds. And as he struggles, here's what I want you to notice. He does so not merely with his own strength. It's not just him doing the work. He's working and struggling and agonizing. He's doing his part, yes, but he's doing it in a power that's far beyond himself. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling, watch this, with all what? Say it out loud. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, it's hidden in English there, but the last two phrases utilize the same word in Greek, and it is the word from which we get our English, energy, struggling literally with all his energy that he energizes in me. It's the same word that he energizes in me in power. He's just piling one word after another, work, struggle, energizing power and so he's doing the work but he ain't doing it at his own strength he's doing it in this incredible god-given power because he knows that ministry requires not just an external effort but an internal power that he doesn't have what it takes to muster It can't be self-generated because it's supernatural work. And the thing I've learned about supernatural work is that supernatural work requires supernatural power. I don't have the power to save anybody, neither do you. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can not only have the courage to do what we're called to do, but we can trust that God in His own sovereignty will bear fruit in such a way that's far beyond anything that we'd be able to do on our own. And what's encouraging is that we have the power available to us to do it. We have that power available because Christ is in us. And he's the eternal hope of glory. Speaking of Spurgeon, the great African missionary David Livingston once asked Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how in the world do you manage to do the work of two men In a single day. And Spurgeon very quickly said, Well, you've forgotten that there are two of us doing the work. And it's the same for you and me. Not just me, it's Christ in me. Thank God we don't walk alone. Amen. And thank God we don't have to. Work alone, and we don't have to witness alone. I believe that's what Jesus told his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And thank God the Holy Spirit's not only come upon us. The very Spirit of Christ lives within us. Never forget that as we all are called to grow and mature in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're all called to minister the gospel. We're all ambassadors for Christ. And our message is crystal clear. Christ in you is the only hope of glory. Therefore, be reconciled to God. This is God's Word. That's a great passage. And all God's people said, Amen.